0: Well, go ahead and track down a Bible. We're in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 to 19. In the Bibles that we have here in the racks in front of you, you can find Proverbs chapter 6 on pages 545 and 546. And so I'm going to read verses 1 to 19 of Proverbs chapter 6, and then we'll pray. We will get to work. Let's go. Does My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor if you've shaken hands and pledged for a stranger, you've been trapped by what you said, ensnared by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son, to free yourself, since you've fallen into the hands of a neighbor. Go to the point of exhaustion and give your neighbor no rest. Allow no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelid. Free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of a hunter, like a bird from the snare of the fowler. Go to the ant you sluggard, Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. A troublemaker and a villain who goes about with a corrupt mouth, who winks maliciously with his eye, signals with his feet, and motions with his fingers, who plots evil with deceit in his heart, he always stirs up conflict. Therefore disaster will overtake him in an instant. He will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Let's pray. Lord, we've opened your word together and we've read it aloud, and now we're asking that you, by your spirit, through your word, would speak. We pray, God, that you would use this time to make us wise people, and we pray that for your glory. Amen. The book of Proverbs is a book of the Bible designed to help people live skillfully. That's what wisdom means. It's knowing how to order your life according to the reality that there is a God who made the world that we live in, and we want to live in step and in harmony with who he is and what he has done and how we are to relate to this world that he's made. So we want to become wise people. And as we walk our way through the book of Proverbs, we begin to recognize that it gives us all these big categories of life. things that we need to pay attention to and in chapter 6 we're introduced to three more categories here that we need to be wise with our finances we need to be wise with our work and we need to be wise people in general and so that's what we're going to find here three different divisions and it's warning us here about uh being aware that there is foolishness in these financial promises to be avoided that we avoid these foolish promises we avoid foolish work practices and we avoid becoming foolish people. So let's take them one at a time. Verses 1 to 5, the foolish financial promise. This is telling us that there are situations where we strike up a deal and we put ourselves in the realm of harm. We make poor choices here, and it is devastating to us. So look at verses 1 and 2. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, if you've shaken hands in a pledge for a stranger, you have been trapped by what you said, ensnared by the words of your mouth. In other words, it's saying that there's a way to kind of put yourself on the hook financially that is harmful to you, and you have put yourself in a situation where you are entrapped. It's reminding us that there are poor financial decisions out there. Now, this week, I, I, um, the funny thing is, I was like, okay, the mature stuff, that's going to be really, really hard. And so I just assumed like last week and next week, those would be the challenging ones. I looked at the calendar and I kind of circled this week and I go, oh, this one will be easy. And then this week I started working my way through it and I was like, ah, bummer. (laughs) This stuff is really hard to understand and explain. And there was a bunch of extra work that went into it. But um, one of the things that I did this week then was I looked at all the different instances where in the Bible it talks about financial dealing. Now, obviously I didn't do everything, but it made me realize that this is talking about a specific instance, because the Bible does tell us that there are situations where the people of God are permitted to loan money. Deuteronomy 24, verse 10, when you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, do not go in their home to collect the pledge. There's an, there's an assumption there that there, there will be situations where you will lend money, and then there's a provision that's given there. It's in the law of God of how to do that, and then things to protect protect the borrower and what you ought to do as the lender and those sorts of things. In Psalm 112, verse 5, it says, Good will come to those who are generous and lend freely, who conduct their affairs with justice. It's telling us that people who are following God, it'll be good for them if they handle their resources in a way that's liberal, that they give it away, that they're generous with it and they conduct their business uh, with justice. And so the assumption is in the Bible that we will, as the followers of God, we will look for opportunities to use our resources to benefit others. And so you have to ask the question, well, what's going on here in Proverbs? Then? Why is it telling us to be careful of striking a pledge? Because in other places you're making pledges. So what's going on here? I think the principle is this, that you as a follower of God, if you want to be wise, Whenever you make any kind of financial deal, you need to do your homework. You need to be aware of the circumstances and the terms. You need to be aware of the character of the people that you're doing business with. All of that matters because if you want to be wise, you need to be careful with your resources. Generous for sure, but do your due diligence in terms of the sort of people that you're dealing with. Ty and M are building their home right now, and they're so and and we own a church building now. There are all these different contracts that people will enter into. If you want to be wise, one of the things you have to do is your homework. What sort of company are we dealing with? What sort of individuals are we doing business with? Because that really does matter. We need to be careful about these sorts of financial entanglements. It's telling us here that this is a financial commitment that puts the 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 person who's putting their name on it, it puts them in jeopardy. Alan Ross says it like this, the pledge is a foolish one, but the neighbor might be a misfit. You look again at the the verse, it says you're lending to a neighbor, and then it goes on to say you've put up a pledge for a stranger. That's a part of the problem. You don't know the character of the individual, and so you might have put yourself in a situation of jeopardy. So here's what you should do. Verse 3, do this, my son, to free yourself since you've fallen into the neighbor's hands. It says, go to the point of exhaustion and give your neighbor no rest. If you found yourself in a deal like this, what you need to do is you need to work yourself out of it. And you need to go to the one that you have co-signed their debt and you need to badger them. You need to stay on top of them until this debt is gone. You need to work hard to the point of exhaustion and give yourself no rest. Allow no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. If you have put yourself in a situation where you are financially liable, you need to work yourself out of that. You need to free yourself. Verse 5, free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of a hunter, like a bird from the snare of the follower. If you found yourself in a bad deal, get out of it. Do everything that you can to work yourself out of this deal. Babysit the borrower. Go to that person that your name is is put up as security against their, their debt and you babysit them and you say, how are you going to pay that? Let's go over your finances again. Let's look at your budget. Let's make sure that you're able to pay off this debt because I've put myself in a situation where I'm financially responsible for you. So this is reminding us that there is a foolish way to handle money. And it is foolish because you are unaware of the terms of the deal and you could put yourself in harm's way. So this is telling us that even generosity can go sideways without wisdom. You need to be very, very careful of the deals that you engage in. Now, if this is talking about finances in general, I I see a reason why we should also talk about debt of any kind. And this is often a place that is cherry-picked to justify those different conversations, but I think it's warranted. I think that we need to be careful about any of the financial transactions that we incur, including the ones that we put on ourselves. So I did student ministry for eight and a half years, and one of the recurring conversations for young people was, "Where am I going to go to college, and how am, I, how am I going to pay for it?" And I would always counsel young people to be very, very careful about taking on student loan. It sounds wonderful. Sounds like people just give you money the truth is the average amount of money that people will, will get in student loans is to the tune of thirty-five to $40,000. And we had students who, there were some students who went away to universities and ended up closer to $100,000 in debt. And you start to look at that and you think, okay, if you want to be wise financially, to move in that direction and to take on that sort of, of tremendous debt puts you at a disadvantage for life you're going to start your vocation in the hole and you're going to have a very, very hard time working your way out of that. So be careful of that sort of debt or in our society, consumer credit, Uh, credit card debt is insane to pay 30% to borrow against your future income. it, It really, it doesn't mathematically make sense. And so we need to be the kind of people who are wise and we look at our finances and we go, we want to make sure that we're not putting ourselves into situations where we are in financial jeopardy and all that we're doing is trying to figure out how to make ends meet. Wise people should be careful with their resources. Wise people should do this. Romans 13 let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. So we need to work very, very hard to ensure that we don't put ourselves in contracts that are unfavorable. And if we find ourselves there, we need to do exactly what this is saying. Work yourself to the point of exhaustion to get out. Free yourself from that entrapment. So be careful about foolish financial promises, verses 1 to 5. Secondly, be careful about falling into foolish work practices, verses 6 to 11. This is telling us that it is possible to have a job and to not be a very good worker. And that's dumb. That's foolish. It's possible to have a job and to not be industrious or productive, and to actually be a sluggard. Let's look at it. It tells us here, verse 6, Go to the ant, you sluggard, and consider its ways, and be wise. Learn this lesson from the insect. Learn from an ant. The way of wisdom looks like this. Go to the ant and observe their work ethic. So the ant can teach us the, the way of industry, and if we learn the lesson, we can become wise. That's what verse 6 is implying. So what, is, what does the ant do? Well, the ant works without supervision. The ant is intrinsically motivated. Verse 7, the ant has no commander, no overseer, or ruler. In other words, the ant doesn't have to report to a boss. The ant is not worried about their annual performance review and the potential of getting a raise or just staying at the same rate. The ant isn't submitting their quarterly goals and having somebody babysit them to make sure that they're doing their work. The ant isn't doing all these different things that we, I'm not saying those are bad things, we need them. Those are good and helpful resources, but that cannot be the motivating factor for whether or not we work. The motivating factor for whether or not we work and the kind of work that we do should be intrinsic. It should come from inside of us, where we say there's a job to be done, work is a gift from God, and so I am going to get after doing this work. The ant doesn't have any supervision, and yet it works diligently. Look at verse 8. It stores its provisions in summer. It gathers its food at harvest. It's taking advantage of the opportunity. You won't always have all the same advantages to be able to do the work, but when the moment happens where there's work to be done, do the work. That's what the ant is doing. During the summer, it's storing up provisions. It's harvesting at the appropriate time. It's gathering food at the harvest. It's doing the work when the work is in front of it. And that's the sort of thing that wisdom looks like, recognizing that there's an opportunity, so I'm going to do the work. On the other hand, what you have here is the way of the fool. Look at verse 9. How long will you lie there, you slugger? How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? And so what the sluggard is doing is the sluggard is putting off work. There's an opportunity right there, a job to be done, but it's going to be there. So I'm just going to take a rest right now. And it goes on to say what, what might happen is you might end up in a situation that surprises you. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. In other words, you are excusing yourself from being industrious. And what might happen is something will happen immediately that you're unprepared for. Poverty will show up like a thief that you've not been, you know, setting your home up to be safe from. It'll just barge right in. And all of a sudden you have to deal with it and you're unprepared for it. Or it's like an armed man. And you have no recourse against this armed man barging in and taking what he wants that's what inactivity will do inactivity can lead to scarcity and so we do not want to be the sluggard we don't want to be the fool that is excusing ourselves from doing the work when it's there for us saying i'll get to it eventually because eventually might never come and poverty and scarcity might surprise us so we need to be the kind of people who are wise who are working when there is an opportunity to work. Now, I've been thinking a lot about this, and I'm going to make some statements that I, that I wonder if they're overstatements, but I've been praying about it and just kind of thinking through it a little bit, and I'm, I'm to the point where I'm pretty confident. I think that the workforce might be the greatest mission field that we have right now. And what I mean is there's an opportunity here that is unparalleled that if Christians will will take up a Christian work ethic, they will make the kingdom of God appear to be so attractive to so many people. And if we will embrace it, if we will embrace this high calling of working for the the glory of God, we might see incredible results. So if you've done anything over the past couple of years, you've gone to a restaurant, you've had your car serviced, you've gone to some place where ordinarily you would expect a certain degree of service to happen, what do we find out? There's a lack of staffing and everyone's backlog. And so now there's this huge vacuum of opportunity. And what I'm coming to the conclusion of is that we can respond to that need in a very helpful way. Now I'll tell you what most people that I talk to do, and I don't think it's right. When we meet the lack of staffing, the lack of service, the lack of expectations, I think a lot of Christians assume that there's a Bible in, uh, a verse in the Bible that says what we should do is complain and bicker and argue and villainize. And I've not found that verse yet. If I find it, I'll let you know. But I don't think it's in there. Um, I think what we ought to do is we ought to step into that vacuum of need. That if there is a lack of staffing, I think Christians can help with that problem. I think that people who understand the kingdom of God and the wisdom of work can be incredibly valuable in this season. Let me, let me explain it to you like this. A lot of times when, when people work, I was going to use my kids, but I thought that's not fair. Um, when people work, you can imagine your coworkers and your workforce that you currently deal with. There are some people who are industrious to a point. They do their job and they do it well. And they do it quickly, right? They go to work and they're like, what do I need to get done? They get their job done. But then there are others who are a little bit more pokey. They don't get their work done right away. So the ones who do the work quickly up to a point begin to resent the other ones, and they say, I do my job, why should I have to do their job too? Okay? And and it becomes an issue of fairness. I want to try to change the conversation that Christians are having to sound more like this. If I'm going to be wise and productive Fairness is not what I'm after. Productivity is. Christians could be the ones who do their job, some of the work of some of their coworkers as well. They could help other people. Christians could, be, could actually end up being the kind of people who are doing three jobs or four jobs or more. And we're not, you know, griping and complaining about that. We're actually looking at the situation like, there's an opportunity here. God has gifted me with the ability to work, and I want to work for the king and his kingdom, and so I'm going to do that. I'm going to do, I'm going to do everything that I can while, while it's summertime to store up provisions. While there's a harvest, I'm gathering food. There's a job here, and I can do it. And if Christians began to move toward work in that sort of way, they would be indispensable, and organizations would be incredibly blessed to have them on the team. And I want to move in that direction because I think that would add value to our society. That we could become the people who aren't just thinking, I'm, I'm just doing my job, and when that's done, I'm done. No, let's think in terms of productivity, and how can we glorify God with the things that we do with our work? Let's not be fools, let's be wise. Well, finally, foolish people in verses 12 to 19, they're described in the first part of it, and then they're assessed by God in the second part. And the question I was wrestling with this week is, what is the relationship between this section and the other two? What's the relationship between these foolish individuals that are troublemakers and villains and the financial dealings and the work ethic? What's the connection? And, and then it dawned on me this morning, the connection is this. The kind of people who make poor financial deals and the kind of people who are lazy sluggards are the kind of people who are foolish people. They're, they are self-interested people. And that's what we find in verses 12 to 19. They're described as troublemakers and villains. Verse 12, a troublemaker and a villain says whose mouth who goes about with a corrupt mouth, meaning they're talking, but they're using their words in a way that is actually less than truthful and could be harmful to other people. The interest is their, their own interest and what they communicate only conveys that and it might do harm to other people. Then they have all these nonverbal communication things that are going on that indicate they're being shady. They're doing things to try to work a deal to their own end, and it might do harm to other people. Look at this. Who winks maliciously with their eye, who signals with his feet, and motions with his finger. It's describing somebody who's, who's wheeling and dealing subtly, but then making kind of these little gestures indicating, this is good for me. And it might harm these people, but it's good for me. And the problem then is the heart, verse 14, who plots evil with deceit in his heart and always stirs up conflict. The troublemaker and the villain, the the issue with the troublemaker and the villain is that they have a heart that is misaligned, a heart that only cares for him or herself. And therefore, they are always stirring up conflict. Because if if all they can think about is what's gonna be advantageous to them, they're gonna look at anybody else and go, how can I make you do the things that would make me happy? And that results in conflict. That results in poor financial deals where you say, I'm gonna get them to sign off on my debt. Or that results in a poor work ethic where you say, I'm gonna take a nap because I know my coworker is gonna get the job done. It's, It's a selfish way to live and it is foolish. And that's why the assessment is given, so we understand in very plain terms, God is not okay with this. The outcome, verse 15, disaster will overtake them in an instant. He will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. One day, God is going to settle all accounts, and for those that are foolish, it will not go well. And it will feel sudden, and it will be devastating, because God will reveal the true condition of the troublemaker's heart. But look at how he assesses the situation in verses 16 and following. It reads like this, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. So make no mistake here, these are things that God is not okay with. And, he, and it lists them out. Verse 17, haughty eyes. It's a word for pride. It's when we look at other people and we see ourselves as right and correct and doing everything as it should be and then we look down on other people and we are fault finders and we are critics and we look at them with haughty eyes i'm right they're wrong my way's best i could never stand to do it like them we look at other people with these haughty eyes verse 17 goes on to say lying tongue but we we communicate in a way that is less than truthful we could be we we always tell the story in a way where we're the hero and other people are villains, and we lie with our tongues. We're, not, we're inaccurate in the way that we communicate about life. Hands that shed innocent blood, a willingness to do harm to other people. Verse 18, a heart that devises wicked schemes. Again, that command center of the soul, the heart, that's all, that in this case is always looking for uh, ways to manifest itself in these evil, wicked schemes that are quick to rush into evil, a willingness to go toward things that are not wide. Verse 19, a false witness who pours out lies. So when you're communicating about how things are in the world, you're willing to, to shade the truth in a way that is, again, going to paint you in the picture of being in the right and other people being painted in the picture of the wrong. And finally, verse 19, a person who stirs up conflict in the community. So again, you see that repetition between the Anatomy of the the troublemaker and the villain, and the things that God is opposed to. So Alan Ross, he says, look, if if the Lord hates these things, then it stands to reason that the opposite would be true. He loves and desires their opposite. Think about that. So if God hates all these things that we've listed off, here's what he loves. He loves humility. As opposed to the haughty eyes looking down on people, he loves people who look on other people with humility, self-awareness of our neediness and our limitations. He loves that. He loves truthful speech. When we communicate in a way that reflects reality, he loves the preservation of life. When we look after and care for those who are in need, he loves pure thought. He loves eagerness to do good things. He loves the honest witness who's always going to tell the truth. And he loves the peaceful experience of harmony. The fool creates an environment that is hostile. The fool creates an environment that is full of conflict and and discord. The wise person in humility follows God and creates a beautiful environment for people to thrive. That's what we need to do. Now, I, I wrestled with it a bit this week and I came to the conclusion, it's fun to preach against people, not so fun when that person is you. And I started to look at this list and acknowledge all these things are resident in me. That I have a tendency to place myself in the very center of the universe and expect that everything else ought to revolve around me and then to view other people as people to serve me, my universe, my kingdom, my, my agenda. And I find in me all of these different, the, the ability in me to respond like the fool. And I wonder if I'm not alone. I wonder if we were all to kind of examine our own hearts and think through how we behave and how we make decisions and how we live our life and how we order things around us. I wonder if we would find that sometimes the, the motivating factor in all of our decisions really is foolishness. The, the false assumption that it should all be about us. The pride that thinks that we ought to be at the center of the universe ruling everything. So we are warned to be careful about our finances, to be careful with our work ethic, and to be careful with the kind of people that we're becoming. And we're told here that we should be wise people who financially make smart choices, who work incredibly hard with wisdom, and who create a network of caring relationships, a community that's beautiful. And that's exactly what the Lord himself did. You think about Jesus Christ and how he would apply wisdom and he would live these things out. He did all of this. With finances, he was incredibly careful. He was generous to the point of almost being at fault. He said, I don't have a house. like He talked about people following him, and he said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have have nests, but I have no place to rest my head. And he just dealt with money in a way that was incredibly different. He was generous with it, but he was willing to pay where, where there was a necessity for payment whether that was a service that they were receiving or whether that was taxes. He said, give Caesar whatever belongs to him. If the government needs something, just give it to them. But give to God what belongs to God. And he dealt with money in a way that was wise and admirable. And we look at him and we need to try to figure out how can we live more like him? How can we deal with our finances in a way that reflects his heart and his character? What about work? How did he, how did he do his life? Look at the three years of ministry and the, the incredible productivity of those three years. He said, I'm always doing my father's work. He was, he, he was working very, very diligently. What about, what about being the kind of person creating a, a healthy environment? That's exactly what he did. He built this beautiful environment of caring disciples who were able to love and serve one another. He modeled it for them by washing their feet and teaching them, as the master has done, you do likewise. So we have a Lord who loved us and displayed wisdom for us. So may we become like our king and grow in his wisdom. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would help us become wise. Lord, we pray that you would protect us from foolishness. And uh, in this moment, I just want to acknowledge how easy it is to be reckless and foolish. So help us, Lord. Help us be more like your son. Help us to be good managers of the monies that we have. Help us to be industrious workers with whatever assignment you place in front of us. and Help us to be the kind of people whose hearts are moved by the heart of God, who are wise people. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.